The Air by Vita Sackville West. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story One The Air. Thirteen. Only two days remained. Chase had sent for his clothes and had enclosed a note for Nutley in his letter to Fortune. Press of business prevented him from returning to Black Boys, but he was content to leave everything in Nutley's hands, etc. Polite enough. Nutley read the note, standing in the gallery which had been cleared in preparation for the sale. It was, he thought, a stroke of genius to hold the sale in the house itself, to display the furniture in its own surroundings, instead of in the dreary frame of an auction-room. That would make very little difference to the dealers, of course who knew the intrinsic value, but from the stray buyers, the amateurs, who would be after the less important things, it might mean anything up to an extra twenty-five per cent. He was alone in the gallery, for it was not yet ten o'clock, and he maliciously wondered what Chase's feelings would be, if he could see the room now, the baize-covered tables on trestle legs, the auctioneer's desk and high chair, the rows of cane chairs arranged as though in a theatre the choicest pieces of furniture grouped behind cords at the further end of the room, like animals awaiting slaughter in a pen. The little solicitor was from time to time startled by the stab of malice that thought of Chase evoked. He was startled now. He clapped his hand over his mouth, to suppress an ejaculation or a grin, and glanced round the gallery. It was empty but for the lean dog, who sat with his tail curled like a whiplash round his haunches and who might have come down out of the tapestry, gravely, regarding Nutley. The lean dog, scenting disruption, had trailed about the house for days like a haunted soul, and Nutley had fallen into the habit of saying to him, with a jocularity oddly peppered by venom, "'I'll put you into the sale as an extra item, spindle-shanks.' Dimly it gratified him to insult Chase through Chase's dog. People began to filter in. They wandered about, looking at things and consulting their catalogues. Nutley, who examined them stealthily, and with as much self-consciousness as if he had been the owner, discriminated nicely between the bona fide buyers and those who came out out of idle curiosity. Chase had already recognized the mentality that seizes upon any pretext for penetrating into another man's house, if as far as his bedroom so much the better. Nutley might as well have returned to his office, since here there was no longer anything for him to do, but he lingered with the satisfaction of an impresario. Could he but have stood at the front door to receive the people as the cars rolled up at intervals? Hospitable and welcoming phrases came springing to his lips, and his hands spread themselves urbanely, the palms outwards. No sharpness in his manner none of the chill-blained acerbity that kept him always on the defensive, nothing but honey and suavity. Walk in, walk in, ladies and gentlemen, no entrance fee in my peep-show. Twenty years I had to wait for the old woman to die. I fixed my eye on her when she was sixty, but she clung on till she was over eighty. Then she went. It's all in my hands now. Walk in, walk in, ladies and gentlemen. Walk upstairs. The show's going to begin. It was very warm, really an exceptional summer. If the weather held for another two days, it would improve the attendance at the sale. London people would come. Nutley had the sudden idea of running a special. Even now, 
picnic parties were dotted about, under the trees beside their motors. No wonder that they were glad to exchange burning pavements against fresh grass for a day. Chase, Chase wouldn't like the litter they left. Bits of paper, bottles and tins. He wouldn't say anything, he never did. That was exactly what made him so disconcerting. But he would look, and his nose would curl. But Chase was safely away, while the picnics took place under his trees, and women in their light summer dresses strolled about in his garden, and pointed with their parasols at his house. Nutley saw them from the windows. For the first time since he remembered the place, the parapet of the central walk was bare of peacocks. They had taken refuge indignantly in the cedars, where they could be heard screeching. He remembered Chase, feeding them with bits of bread from his pocket. He remembered old Miss Chase, wagging her finger at him, and saying, "'Ah, Nutley,' she always called him by his surname, like a man, "'you want to deprive an old maid of her children. It's too bad of you.' But the chases were gone, both of them, and no chases remained, but those who stared sadly from their frames, where they stood propped against the wall, ready to be carried into the sale-room. 14. June the twenty-first, the day of the sale, Midsummer Day, Nutley's Day. He arrived early at the house, and met at the door Colonel Stanforth, who had walked across the park, and who considered the solicitor's umbrella with amusement. "'Afraid it will rain, Nutley? Look at that blue sky, not a cloud, not even a white one.' They entered the house together, Stanford rubicund and large. Nutley noticeably spare in the black coat that enveloped him like a sheath. "'Might be an undertaker's mute,' Stanforth commented inwardly. "'Isn't Fairbrother coming up today?' he asked aloud. "'Oh, yes, I dare say he'll look in later,' Nutley answered, implying as clearly as possible by his tone that it was not of the slightest importance whether his partner looked in or not. "'Well, there aren't many people about yet.' said Stanforth, rubbing his hands vigorously together. "'What about your Brazilians, eh? Are they going to put in an appearance? Chase, I hear, is still in Wolverhampton.' "'Yes,' answered Nutley. "'We shan't see much of him.' "'Of course there was no necessity for him to come. But it's odd of him to take so little interest, don't you think? Odd, I mean, as he seemed to like staying in the place, and to have got on so remarkably well with all the people around.' Not that I saw anything of him when he was here. An unneighborly sort of fellow, I should think. But to hear some of the people talk about him, by gad, I was quite sorry he couldn't settle down here as squire. As you say, there was no necessity for him to come to the sale, said Nutley, frigidly ignoring the remainder of Stanforth's remarks. No, but if I'd been he, I don't think I could have kept away all the same. Nutley went off, saying he had things to see to. On the landing he met the butler with Thane, slouching disconsolately after him. "'You'll see that dog's shut up, Fortune,' he snapped at him. An air of suspense hung over everything. The sale was announced to begin at midday, because the London train arrived shortly after eleven. But before then the local attendants poured in, and many people drove up who had not previously been seen at the house, their business being with the lands or the farms farmers in their gigs, tiptoeing awkwardly and apologetically on the polished boards of the hall, while their horses were led away into the stable-yard, and there were many of the gentry, too, who came in wagonettes or pony-traps. 
Nutley, watching and prying everywhere, observed the arrival of the latter with mixed feelings. On the one hand, their presence increased the crush, but on the other hand, he did not for a moment suppose they had come to buy. They came in families, shy and inclined to giggle, and to herd together, squire and lady dressed almost similarly in tweed, and not differing much as to figure either, the sons very tall and slim, and slightly ashamed, the daughters rather taller and slimmer, in light muslins and large hats, all whispering together, half propitiatory, half on the defensive, and casting suspicious glances at every one else. Amongst these groups, Nutley discerned the young Brazilian, graceful as an antelope amongst cattle, and, going to the window, he saw the white Rolls-Royce silently manoeuvring amongst the gigs and the wagonettes. "'Regular bean-feast, ain't it?' said Stanforth's voice behind him. "'You ought to have had a merry-go-round and a gypsy booth, Nutley.' Nutley uncovered his teeth in a nervously polite smile. He looked at his watch, and decided that it was time the London motors began to arrive. Also the train was due. Most of those who came by train would have to walk from the station. It wasn't far across the village and down the avenue to the house. He could see the advance guard already, walking in batches of two and three. And there was Fairbrother, silly old Fairbrother, with his rosy face and his big spectacles, and his woolly white curls under the broad hat. Not long to wait now. The auctioneer's men were at their posts. Most of the chairs in the gallery were occupied, only the front rows being left empty owing to diffidence. The auctioneer himself, Mr. Webb, had arrived and stood talking to Colonel Stanforth, with an air of unconcern, on any topic other than the sale. The farms and outlying portions were to be dealt with first, then the house and the contents of the house, then the park, and the building lots that had been carved out of the park, and that were especially dear to Nutley. It would be a long sale, and probably an exciting one. He hoped there would be competition over the house. He knew that several agencies were after it, but thought that he would place his money on the Brazilian. A continuous stir of movement and conversation filled the gallery. People came up to Nutley and asked him questions in whispers, and some of the big dealers nodded to him. Nearly all the men had their catalogues and pencils ready. Some were reading the booklet. The Brazilian slipped into a prominent seat, accompanied by his solicitor. A quarter to twelve. The garden was deserted now, for everyone had crowded into the house. Five minutes to twelve. Mr. Webb climbed up into his high chair, adjusted his glasses, and began turning over some papers on the desk before him. A message was brought to Nutley. Mr. Webb would be much obliged if he would remain at hand to answer any point that might be raised. Nutley was only too glad. He went and leant against the auctioneer's chair at the back, and from there surveyed the whole length of the room. Rows of expectant people, people leaning against the walls and in the doorways, the gaitered farmers, the gentry, the dealers, the clerks and small fry, the men in green baize aprons, such a crowd as the gallery had never seen. Lot one, gentlemen. The sharp rap of the auctioneer's little ivory hammer, and the buzz in the room was stilled. Throats were cleared, heads raised. Lot one, gentlemen. Three cottages adjoining the station, with one acre of ground, colored green on plan. What bids, gentlemen? Anyone start the bidding? Five hundred guineas? Four hundred. 
Come, come, gentlemen, please, admonishing them. We have a great deal to get through. I ask your kind cooperation. Knocked down at seven hundred and fifty guineas. Nutley noted the sum in the margin of his catalogue. Webb was a capital auctioneer. He bustled folk, he chaffed them. He got them into a good temper. He made them laugh so that their purses laughed wide in company. He had a jolly round face, a twinkling eye, and a rosebud in his buttonhole. Five hundred and fifty for the next lot. Two cottages. So far, so good. Now, gentlemen, we come to something a little more interesting. The farmhouse and lands known as orchards. An excellent house, and a particularly fine brew of ale kept there, too, as I happen to know, though that doesn't go with the house. The audience laughed. It appreciated that kind of pleasantry. What offers, gentlemen? Two hundred acres of fine pasture and arable, ten acres of shaw, twenty acres of first-class fruit trees. That's so, sir, from Chase's old apple-dealer friend at the back of the room, and heads were turned smilingly towards him. There spoke the best authority in the county, cried the auctioneer, catching on to this, as nice a little property as you could wish. I've a good mind to start the bidding myself. Fifty guineas, I'll put up fifty guineas. Who'll go one better? The audience laughed again. Mr. Webb had a great reputation as a wag. Nutley caught sight of Fairbrother's full moon face at the back of the room, perfunctorily smiling. The tenant began bidding for his own farm. He had been to Nutley to see whether a mortgage could be arranged, and Nutley knew the extent of his finances. The voice of the auctioneer followed the bidding monotonously up. Two thousand guineas! Two thousand two hundred! Come, gentlemen, we're wasting time! Two thousand five hundred! Knocked down to the farmer at three thousand five hundred guineas! A wink passed between Nutley and the purchaser. The place had not sold very well, but Nutley's firm would get the commission on the mortgage. Lot 4. Jake's Cottage. Nutley remembered that Chase had once commented on Jake's garden, and he remembered also that old Miss Chase used to favor Jake's and his flowers. He supposed sarcastically that it was hereditary among the Chases to favor Jake's. That same stab of malice came back to him, and this time it included Jake's. The man made himself ridiculous over his garden, carrying, as he boasted, soil and leaf-mold home for it for miles upon his back. That was all over now, and his cottage would first be sold as a building site, and then pulled down. He caught sight of Jake's, standing near a window, his everyday corduroy trousers tied as usual with string round the knees. He looked terribly embarrassed, and was swallowing hard. The Adam's apple in his throat moved visibly above his collar. He stood twisting his cap between his hands. Nutley derisively watched him, saying to himself that the fellow might be on the point of making a speech. Surely he wasn't going to bid? A working man, on perhaps forty shillings a week. Nutley was taken up and entertained by this idea, when a stir at the door distracted his attention. He glanced to see who the latecomer was, and perceived Chase. End of Story 1, Sections 13 and 14